Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton season three, now playing only on Netflix. What my relationship is with resentment is that it is something that I have to manage and something that I objectively understand does not fuel me in a healthy way. I objectively understand that it eats me up and makes me furious and saps my agency. And so I like give it space, but I don't let it take over because then I outsource who gets to control how I feel about the world. Welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the whip-smart Yasmin Abdelmajid, a woman with perhaps the most impressive resume of anyone we've ever interviewed on this podcast. Yasmin is a media personality and a writer, yes, but she's also a woman who has worked for years as a successful engineer and a social justice advocate who, at just 16, started the youth charity Youth Without Borders. In 2010, she was named Young Queenslander of the Year and in 2015 was named Queensland Australian of the Year. Her 2014 TED Talk has been watched by more than 3 million people worldwide. She's written a memoir and now she's turning her hand to young adult fiction, releasing You Must Be Layla in 2019 and her newest book, Listen Layla, which was released this week. In this chat, we talk about everything from being a teenage overachiever to the precipice of burnout and what it feels like to grieve her younger self and the youthful naivety that was stolen from her by a career in the public eye. She is so warm and funny and smart and we cannot wait for you to hear this chat. Here's Yasmin. Yasmin Abdel-Majid, welcome to Shameless in Conversation. This is a big pinch me moment for Zara and I. We are very, very excited to have you on. It is 8 p.m. where we are. What time is it where you are right now? It is. It's 9 a.m., which isn't technically that early, but I haven't gotten up before like double digits for maybe the past two months. So (laughs) So to be up before the clock is in double digits is a big deal. (laughs) Well, we are very flattered that you got up for us before double digits and also so fair in the middle of winter in London in lockdown. So we will not judge you for that. Yasmin, we want to start where we always start and it is to ask, what were you like as a kid? You moved to Brisbane as an 18-month-old from Sudan with your parents and your younger brother. What were you like as a kid? So the first word that I learned apparently that my parents like to tell everybody is no because I was constantly getting into things and my parents would be like, no, in Arabic it was la. So like they'd be like, 
لا ياسمين وات ار يو دوينغ لا اند سو وي وي ستيينغ وذ سم فاميلي فريندز ماي ماي مام هاد ا بن باو ان استراليا اند ذات اكشلي هاو وي اندد اب جيتينغ تو استراليا فروم سودان اند لايك ذا هول فاميلي لرنت ذا وورد نو ان عربيك بيكوز بيبل جست سيد ات تو مي اول ذا تايم غوينغ اوف ذا اي ثينك اي واز ا كيد هو You know, much like I am as an adult, puts my nose into places where I maybe shouldn't and asks way too many questions. I like talking to strangers. I was like very, very curious. I wouldn't say that I was particularly rebellious in the sense that it's not like I was getting myself into situations that were going to cause real harm. I was just like, I was just really curious about everyone and, and everything. What about school? Did you love school? Okay, I was such a nerd, like a certified nerd. I remember actually <laughs> in grade five, there was this kid named Mustafa that I really just, I don't know why, but he like rubbed me up the wrong way incredibly successfully. He annoyed me so much that I got up in the middle of class and chased him around the classroom. I was like, I can't remember why. I can't remember <laughs> what happened. I was chasing this kid around the classroom. I was like, I will show you. And my parents' threat was, If you dare behave like this again, we'll take you out of school. And I was like, no. The punishment of being taken out of school and being made to like sit at home was like the most horrific thing possible. So I was definitely a nerd, a teacher's pet. I just wanted to learn things. Was there like an innate or intrinsic confidence there then to be like able to get up out of your seat and just like chase someone around the, the classroom? Like that doesn't come naturally to every kid in year five. Yeah. It's funny that you ask that because I think so. And I'm not sure where it came from because my brother is completely different. I remember he said to me once on the phone, he's like, the difference between you and me is that you enjoy being the center of attention and I can't think of anything worse. And so like he he's it's definitely not something that my brother and I share. And my dad is like a real by the books kind of guy. Maybe it comes from my mum. She's just very much like if I think this then, you know, the people will know. So like maybe some of that kind of rubbed off onto me. But yeah, like I I suppose I never felt like I had to apologize for existing which is something that the world does try to tell young girls especially. Mm. Yasmin you've recently written your second novel Listen Layla about a 14 year old who feels torn between her Sudanese and Australian identities. To what level did your own experience inspire how you wrote about Layla? It's funny I'm going to answer in a slightly roundabout way. When I was in high school me and a friend we wrote fan fiction, right? Like terrible fantasy fan fiction. And she was like I can always tell what you're reading because the fan fiction that you write it's not a new original plot, it's just the plot of whatever book you're reading at the time. Like I was just <laughs> never very original and I think like that still applies to my novels. Like it's always a riff of something that's actually happened. And I think it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not fictional, but all the characters that are in my books tend to be like versions of people I know or amalgamations of people I know. The first book was definitely closer to my experience in that it was about a young girl who gets a scholarship to a fancy private school. But the second book I think is the most ambitious novel or like long piece of writing that I've written yet in that I stretched that further away from anything that has actually happened, but it did definitely kind of draw from from my own experiences, my own travels back to Sudan with my family, but also like a big part of the book is talking about the revolution in Sudan and that was something that even though I wasn't on the ground for, it was a big part of my life in 2019. And so I wanted to bring that into the book, into the world of the book. So 
even though it's not directly my life, my life story, I definitely draw on experiences that mean a lot to me. What do you remember from those experiences from your own life? Like what's it like being a teenager and feeling so pulled between those two key identities? I think it would be different if I was growing up in Australia now because when my family moved to Australia, we were like, according to my dad, we were like the second Sudanese family in Brisbane and the next one didn't come to like 10 years later. So I think it was this kind of really strange experience of like you're the only people that you know from the world that you're a part of. So all of my knowledge of what it meant to be Sudanese came from my parents. And so some of the quirks that I find, like I find out later in life, oh, that's not actually a Sudanese thing. That's just a my family thing, right? But because it's what I grew up with, I just assume that it's part of the culture. It was really important for my parents that we went back to Sudan every two years. So I feel really grateful that I had the kind of connection. But I think as a kid, it wasn't really until my teens that I started to kind of think about what it meant to have two different identities. And it wasn't something that really bothered me until people started asking. And they only started asking once I joined this fancy private school, because my my primary school was all other Muslim kids from other places around the world. And so our experience was shared. Whereas when I moved, People were like, oh, where are you from? And Sudan was not a place that was on people's radar. You start to then think, okay, what does it mean to be from somewhere else? How does that kind of fit with with making sense of who I am? I want to talk to you about even finding yourself in that very different kind of high school setting. Did you know what you wanted to do with your life growing up? Like you were clearly a very switched on, curious, intelligent child. Did you lean one way or the other in high school? I mean, personally speaking, I found high school completely daunting when it came to figuring out what the hell I wanted to do because I liked so many different kinds of things. Yeah, definitely relate to that. I was just like, can't I just be everything? Like, why do I have to choose (laughs) So I come from a family of engineers. And so like the sciencey stuff was definitely big in the family from the get go. And as I was growing up, I was like obsessed with being a scientist. I didn't know what scientists actually did, but I was like, this would be great. And I had like little science experiment kits and stuff. But then I realized I didn't actually like chemistry or biology all that much. And I was like, okay, well, I like talking. Maybe I'll be a lawyer. I remember I did like one trial class of law and I fell asleep and I was like this is not ideal so I think it was like a process of elimination the other main thing that happened when I was in high school that took me in a slightly different path was I fell in love with cars so I watched this film called Catch That Kid which is a terrible like b-grade film that I don't recommend interestingly it has Kirsten Stewart as a child which when I like when I know I didn't realize until like I looked back recently I was like oh my god it's Kirsten Stewart um so so she and two other characters rob a bank and escape on go-karts and I remember watching this and being like oh my god I want to drive really fast for a lot of money I'm gonna be a Formula One driver and like what my family was like no get a realistic dream which is kind of not the point of a dream but anyway Anyway, turns out that I couldn't quite be a driver, but I could design the cars. And so I just like fell into the world of cars and car design. And that kind of eventually led to the point of being like, okay, what's a realistic way that I can bring this with the the dream of working in cars and, you know, something that might actually pay me money. And so I picked engineering. I mean, before you got to your career at 16, you co-founded a youth charity, Youth Without Borders. What pulls a 16-year-old to say, I'm going to start a charity? Because I wasn't doing that at 16, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> if, if you kind of like cast your mind back to that period, so that was like 
I kind of came of age post 9-11 in the like years of going into the Iraq war. Like I remember in grade eight, my maths teacher walked in and was like, the first bombs have been dropped in Iraq. And then there was like drama between Lebanon and Israel. So there were like lots of kind of events in those early noughties years that because of who my friends were and my family and so on, I was just like really involved. I didn't really understand everything, but I was very involved. And because it impacted me and my community, right? Like we were visibly Muslim. And again, before the internet, so you kind of, you only get like a small slice of of news and so on. And the the news that we had access to was very anti-Muslim. So there was a lot going on. And I was interested in justice from the get-go, right? But I was like, how on earth am I going to do anything about it? And so I was joining organizations left, right, and center. Every damn thing that I could volunteer for, I did. It was also quite genuinely the only thing my parents would let me do. <laughs> they, My dad had this policy of, if you're going to do something, it has to be useful. It has to have purpose. And I'm like, Baba, but going to Dreamworld has purpose. And the purpose is fun. And he's like, no, that's not a real purpose. And so getting involved in all those things meant that I kind of noticed that even though there were lots of different organizations working on the same sorts of challenges, they never really worked together. There was like lots of kind of competition and lots of ego and, you know, people would be like, oh, well, you know, my organization is the best and whatever. And I ended up attending this summit called the Asia Pacific City Summit. And there were 100 young people from around the Asia Pacific who'd come together to like talk about the stuff that they were doing in their community. And this issue, again, reared its head where there were literally people working, you know, whether it was youth homelessness or substance abuse or mental health or whatever it might be, and they were fighting it. They were essentially just like, don't work with them. Like, we're way better. And Youth Without Borders came out as a solution to that. I was like, why don't we just find some sort of framework or network or something to be able to, like, focus on pulling our resources together as opposed to trying to compete because we're trying to help the same people And naturally, everyone was like, you're an idiot. You're 16. Like, you've got no idea what you're doing. You have no idea how to start an organization. And there's nothing like telling me I can't do something to get me to actually do it. I'm very predictable in that manner. And I'd loved and been obsessed with Doctors Without Borders, but, like, had no interest in being a doctor. So I was like, well, I guess I'm a youth, so why don't we call it Youth Without Borders? And no, I think like it was just a way for me to channel all of the stuff that I was feeling and try to find a way to fix the problems that I saw in front of me. I'm interested. I mean, today we see it all the time as well of older generations completely discounting young people and how socially engaged young people are and how much they truly want to bring about positive change in the world. How do you feel when you see that kind of dialogue of, oh, well, she's 16, whether it's a climate change activist or any kind of realm? How do you feel when you see young people discounted for what they feel so passionately about? It's so fascinating that you ask that question because I am finding myself sometimes slipping into that. And I'm like, Yasmin, what what are you talking about? You were that 16-year-old. Like, be quiet. And I think it's so fascinating because the older you get, the kind of more you learn and the, the wiser you think you become and all these sorts of things. But I think it's so vital for us to remember what it was like when we were that age and to understand that, like, we have different roles, right? Like, as a 16-year-old, I knew nothing about structural inequality. But, like, I wasn't going out thinking that I was going to be the person to change everything. But I definitely felt that I should be involved and leading the stuff that impacted me. You know, the thing that I would say all the time is 
nobody ever asks us what we want. And it's the same stuff that the kids say today. So it's an evergreen thing, isn't it? That even the baby boomers of today were like, what, the like hippies of the 60s and 70s? And like, they were all like anti-capitalist and free love. And now they're like, own all the houses and are against same-sex marriage. Like, it's just, you know, that's a very sweeping statement. I'm sorry, but but I do think it's fascinating how as you grow or as you get older, it's very easy to forget what the experience of being young is like. And so people feel like they have to somehow dismiss or disregard what the young people are saying. So there's a sense of what they're doing being relevant or being important or being of value. And it's like, no, mate, there's enough space for us all. I'm interested, like you won the awards of Young Queenslander of the Year in 2010 and Queensland Australian of the Year in 2015. We know that Australia has tall poppy syndrome baked into its DNA. Did those successes when you were that young come with a certain level of pressure? I peaked way too early, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny looking back. I think, you know, it's interesting. I think the most pressure came from myself which is probably unsurprising to both of you and, and, and many listeners. I think that, yes, people had expectations of me, but I certainly had higher and more unyielding expectations for myself where I was like, oh, well, I have to win the next thing and I have to prove that what I've done is worth it and and how on earth am I going to be able to justify or to live up to what people expect of me and so on. You know, and it's so funny because, again, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, I sort of do some work with 19, 20-year-olds at the moment and they're like, oh, my God, I need to, I need to achieve everything before I turn 20 or before I turn 21. And I'm like darling, it is so fine. Like you've got time, but the pressure comes from within them because again, we live in the society that's like Forbes 30 under 30 and look at this person who did this thing before they turned 20 and blah, 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 blah. And so when you're that age, you're like, oh my God, every year is so far, every month, I need to get it all done because I'm going to be irrelevant by the time I turn 25. And it just makes you unhappy. I mean, I look back at the time, I was always like, oh, it's never enough. Like, it's cool, but like, so what? I need to kind of like do the next thing. Whereas now I look back, I'm like, oh, baby, you're doing all right. (laughs) It's okay. Just enjoy it. So I think I definitely look back now with a lot more compassion for myself than I had at the time. Mm, It's so true. I think so many of us put that pressure on ourselves so, so young. And you did that as well. I mean, you worked as a ridiculously successful engineer between 2012 and 2016. But then you decided to spread your wings and try writing and broadcasting. And then you crafted an incredibly successful career in the media as well. What drew you to those two very different industries? So I would say that like a lot of my life and career, and I remember hearing somebody else say this and I thought, "Mm, but now I'm I'm saying the same thing. It's like when you look back, it looks planned. But at the time I was just like, oh, right, what do I do next? How do I, like, how am I going to land on my feet? Because I wanted to work in cars and it didn't quite work out. So then I went and worked in oil and gas and then that didn't quite work out. And then I went and worked in the media and then that didn't quite work out. So then I became, so like, you know, there's, there's lots of, I would say pivots. (laughs) That's kind of how I think about it. So I was working on the rigs and 
to kind of give you the slightly longer version of the story, I, I had a blog, right? This was the early 2010s. Everyone had a blog. Mine was called Redefining the Narrative. I thought it was super cool. And one of the councils I was on, the I think it was the Queensland Design Council, there was a lady on the council named Julianne Schultz, and I had come off the rig and gone to one of these meetings, and I was telling her about what was going on, like one of the stories of that particular hitch or trip on the rig. She was like, you need to write an essay about this. She ran the Griffith Review, which is this quarterly publication. And I was like, nobody is going to be interested in anything that I write. I'm an engineer. And she was like, no, 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 you should give it a chance. So I ended up writing this essay for this publication. And lo and behold, people thought it was really interesting. They were like, what is this Sudanese Muslim child doing on oil rigs in the middle of Australia? Like, what is going on? And off the back of that, I started writing a little bit more and eventually was approached to write a memoir and again I was like I'm not gonna write a memoir I was like 23 I was like who wants to know about my life that's so weird and my mom was like take the money take the book deal everyone wants to write a book what are you doing and I remember the conversation we were like sitting outside the state library she was like listen if you don't want to write it for yourself write it about your grandma write it about the women in your life that people don't get to hear about and I was like oh yeah, I can do that. Yeah, 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 all right. My mom clearly knows how to to get me to do stuff. So I wrote this memoir, but I was really careful to make sure that I didn't mention the companies I worked for and I had started working at a new company. I knew that they were very kind of like protective over their PR and blah, blah, blah. But when the book came to be released, the company was like, uh, excuse me? Oh, what is this that you're doing? And I was like, oh, it's good. it's fine. Like I'm doing this in my time off. Like it's no big deal. They were not about it. The head of media had like a particular axe to grind with me. He actually, when I first got hired, he was like, listen, you can either be Yasmin the individual or Yasmin the engineer. You can't be both. And he was like, look, the, the times are tough for the industry. So you want to make sure you're on the right side of everyone. <sighs> And then, wow. so when the book the book is about to come out and I had just been given a double promotion, I was just about to go run my own rig offshore. I was like literally packing my bags to move country to go run this rig. And they called me and they were like, look, we've read the manuscript. We think you potentially breaching your contract. I was not, but they were like, we just, we feel like you demonstrate a pattern of behavior of non-compliance. So they issued a disciplinary warning. They docked my pay. They docked my bonus. They docked my promotion. And they were like, yeah, you're just benched, which let me be clear. This was not how they treated everyone, right? There were other people in the company who I knew personally who had done lots of stuff on the side, but you know, they weren't, black Muslim women and so they were rewarded for it right whereas as somebody else said to me in the company your values just don't match ours and then my boss was like listen the thing is there is a perception that if you're succeeding outside the company you can't be working very hard and you can't be probably doing your job very well and I was like but you know, I was the top ranked drilling graduate in the region. I was like, you know that I work hard. You know that I bust up. And he was like, yeah, but that's not the perception because other people don't have the range. And I was like, oh, so I have to limit myself because everybody else doesn't have the capacity. And he was like, well, yeah, that's just what you have to manage. And so <laughs> I then decided to take a year leave without pay and go touring with the book and then you know that was like 2016 2017 the rest then is history <laughs> coming up after the break the enduring grief yasmin feels when she thinks of her younger self 
But first, a word from today's sponsor. Hey guys, we just wanted to give you some additional context before we play this next part of the episode. In the latter half of the chat, you'll hear Yasmin refer to the year 2017 a lot. Going into the interview, Zara and I were reticent to ask Yasmin to retrace the events of that year, partly because she's been asked to do so in countless interviews already, but also because doing so comes at significant emotional cost to Yasmin. The crux of 2017 is this. Following Yasmin's commentary on her relationship with her religion, as well as the plight of asylum seekers in Australia, she was on the receiving end of a racist media pylon. In fact, that doesn't even cover it. Yasmin received death threats and rape threats and vile taunts, sometimes from fellow high-profile Australians. She was, in as simple terms as possible, pushed out of her own country in search of a safer, more inclusive place to call home. Okay, back to Yasmin. Yasmin, I'm so interested right now then what your relationship with resentment is like when you have people in your way constantly trying to squash you and squash your growth and squash who you're trying to become. My relationship with resentment, well, it's healthy. You know, there's a lot of it. No, so <laughs> Yeah, I have to work hard to not be a very cynical bitch all the time. And I think that like, as you can see, like my life is definitely full of various moments where my best hopes and expectations are not only thwarted, but like thrown back in my face. I have held various amounts of resentment. It's funny, I was in an Uber or like the version of that in the UK that I use called Bolt. And I was talking to the lady, the, there was a, a lady driver and a lady driver, what am I, like an 80-year-old man? There was <laughs> a woman behind the wheel and she was chatting to me and she was like, oh, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I guess I'm a writer. And she was like, what do you mean you guess? I was like, oh, you know, I was an engineer. And, and then this happened. And I told her the story, like a short version of the story. I don't know why I decided to. And she was like, oh, my God, when did this happen? And I was like, oh, like, you know, four years ago. And she was like, oh, wow, you are still so upset. I thought it had happened like a, like a few weeks ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, the truth. She was like, are you still that hurt about it? And I was like, well, evidently. I don't think about those moments too much because it, it takes too much energy up. And so what my relationship is with resentment is that it is something that I have to manage and something that I sort of objectively understand does not fuel me in a healthy way. I objectively understand that it eats me up and makes me furious and saps my agency. And so I like give it space, but I don't let it take over because then I outsource who gets to control how I feel about the world and I don't want to allow others to have control over how I move through the world whether directly or indirectly. What about motivation then? Like what pushes you to keep creating and keep putting yourself out there because like burnout for example is prominent in so many young people let alone people who do have others standing in their way or people trying to squash them like you have. How do you keep going? It's funny you say that because I think I said to my partner yesterday, I was like, I think I'm on the edge of burnout and I need to take some time. So, <laughs> yeah, the pre you know, when you just you start, you're like, I woke up like yesterday and I was like, I can't wait to get back into bed at the end of the day. Like that was my first thought. And I was like, mm, that's not normal. 
<laughs> so something is up here <laughs> when you're already thinking about getting to sleep at the end of the day the day has barely begun so I think I have definitely been burnt out and have but I think over time I have gotten better at noticing when that's about to happen and giving myself the permission to take the space but in terms of motivation I can't sit still and also I feel like there's so much out there in the world to discover right and so I'm always like okay fine like that was bad what should we do next and sometimes it takes a little longer between experiences before you can pull yourself back together but ultimately the thing that always works the best for me is putting myself in a different context and you know whether that is a different country whether that's a different industry whether that's a different group of friends putting yourself in a new environment always reminds you that the world that you knew was was so small and isn't the whole world I mean there's nothing that shows you that like learning a new language for example, and you're like, oh my God, there's an entire history here, an entire body of cultural work, an entire people and culture. Oh, well, let me let me discover that. And so allowing myself to continue to be curious, I think is the most like wholesome way that I fill my cup up. To lead into my next question, I mean, in 2017, you announced on Twitter that you were moving to London and you later explained that this time in your life coincided with a kind of grief and a grief for the life and career that you had built in Australia. What did you mean by that? And what did that move mean for you? As I sort of alluded to, there's been lots of points in my life where I've kind of had to decide what the next step looks like and what the kind of next pivot looks like. And, you know, my life will always be, or at least sort of this this kind of period in my life, there's like a very pre-2017 version of who I was and a post-2017 version. And I think, you know, the grief that I spoke to and have spoken of is a grief for that kind of slightly less resentful version of, you know, who I am, somebody who has a very different idea of how the world works. I broadly understood and believed the same things, but I I think I just had more idealism perhaps or or perhaps a slightly different idea of how I was seen versus, you know how you talked about the confidence that, Zari, you mentioned right at the top, the sort of confidence that I walked through the world with. That confidence was like Mm. ripped to shreds, right? Because it was like, oh, I don't know if I can walk through the world with that confidence anymore because that got me into a lot of trouble, right? So what does it look like to be like, oh, the person that I was who was just me is n- is not really acceptable and people had told me that and i think a lot of folks had tried to tell me that the world was harsher than i thought it was or the world was more cynical than i thought it was but you know i didn't want to believe them and i thought maybe it could be a bit different i mean that's the loveliness of youth right you think that other things are possible you think that change is possible that's what we need the young people for but to me london symbolized I remember when I made the decision because I had come to the UK to do a writers festival the dorky book festival and and then I was visiting a friend in London before I left and I was kind of like telling her what was going on in Australia and she was like why are you there like what is keeping you there like come to London you're like one of hundreds of like you and I remember thinking like what is keeping me in Australia and I slept on it and the next morning I woke and I was I remember I was walking to the train station I called my mom I was like mom I'm moving to London and she was like okay 
And I think it was the first decision I'd made for a long time that was just for me. It was not to please anyone else. I didn't really care any, about anybody else's opinion because I was like, I'm doing this for me. And I'd always secretly wanted to move to London when I was a kid. I mean, you know, I'm a child of the empire. London is in every story, whether you live in Sudan or Australia, right? It's always part of your history in some way, shape or form. I just wanted to to move somewhere where I was one of many. And I grew up in Brisbane. There were, there were no black people where I grew up. London's almost 50% people of colour. You can be anyone you want to be in this city. And even though it's cold and dark and miserable a lot of the time, that kind of weirdly adds to the vibe in some way because you're all, you've all chosen to be there despite the weather. And so, yeah, I think it was a choice that I made for myself to give myself the space to figure out who I wanted to be next and to give myself the space to grieve. There's a bit of shame in realizing that you were very wrong or the idea that you had about the world, your understanding of the world has been so shattered. Not that it was wrong, but it just, it didn't bear up to what was happening. And so you have to like figure out what to do with all that. And I couldn't do that in Australia. There was just so much noise. I needed to be by myself in a place where nobody knew me with the space to figure it all out. And that's what this, yeah, that's what London gave me. It's one thing to move overseas away from your family in like typical times. It's another to then go through a global pandemic where you can't just fly back and see your mom and your dad or any family member that you're missing or any friend that you even have in Brisbane. How have you gone over the last 12 months? I mean, we've struggled in Melbourne and life at the moment looks pretty good for us in Australia, but in London, things are really dire. How are you going and how have you kind of gotten through this time? I think the official term that I use to describe it is like a clusterfuck of a dumpster fire. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's just, there's no two ways about it. It's just awful. I got married just before we went into lockdown. And so I've, my first year of marriage has been just me and my partner locked in a tiny apartment with like not that much access to greenery and (laughs) as many card games as we can like try to play in like it's been an experience we've definitely gotten to know each other very very well (laughs) I think it's just so surreal I was saying this the other day I don't really know how to feel about how different the UK's experience is to Australia because like I've had a lot of people ask me oh well haven't you considered going back to Australia and I find it such a bizarre question because like personally no I just talked about how traumatic my relationship with Australia still is there's no way I want to voluntarily go back and not maybe be able to get out like that just sounds like a nightmare but I have to like at some level admit that life at the moment is easier in Australia because you're allowed to leave the house and see other people. You know, it's pretty, pretty nice thing. And my dad loves Australia, like loves Australia. And every time he's on the phone, he's like, just look at the sun. Look at the, you know, <laughs> you know I, I went to a restaurant the other day. I'm like, dad, I get it. I, I get it. <laughs> we get it. Brisbane's great. Okay. <laughs> he's just, he, the other, and the irony is my dad used to live in London in the seventies, had a terrible time because it was a terrible time to be a black man in the seventies in London. And so like for him, he cannot understand why I think London is better than Australia. He's just like, 
Look at the jacaranda trees. Beautiful, beautiful. So (laughs) I've been surprised how much I miss my friends. And this sounds strange, but like I'm not somebody who generally misses people. I travel a lot. I'm quite independent. And then I had a Zoom call with some friends. I was like, oh my God, I actually miss my friends. I miss my friends, goddammit. Like, I want to see my friends. I'm a grown woman and I'm very independent, but there's a reason I'm friends with the people I'm friends with and it's because I like them, you know? And it just sucks (laughs) to not be able to like hang out and chat shit. And so it's just, I think it's kind of gotten to the point where, you know, we're a month into the third lockdown. We've probably got a few months ahead of us, more of it. There's only so much I can bitch about the government before I get deported. So, like, it's just at this point finding ways to survive it and being a bit compassionate to ourselves because it is a weird, surreal, once-in-a-lifetime experience. There is no right way to do it. I mean, it's an incredibly interesting time to find out where all our perspectives are. I mean, you've said in this interview already, you're a bit of a cynic anyway, but would you classify yourself in this context as like a pessimist, an optimist or a realist when it comes to seeing light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, I think I have to be an optimist at some level, otherwise I wouldn't do what I do, right? Like I wouldn't be trying to change things if I didn't think things can change, but I don't wear my heart on my sleeve anymore. And maybe that's like, that's the the cynicism of of getting older and having been through been through the wars as it were metaphorically i think in some senses i'm a pragmatist i think it's important to not only alongside one's idealism and optimism think about well what can we do now what can we actually get done how do we kind of take steps forward because all the theory in the world can't help you if you're not actually able to like make a single thing actually happen in the real world. And that's, I think, also my engineering hat, right? Like I, I'm like, how can we actually fix this problem in a way today? I have moments of pessimism, but it just makes me sad. So I can't spend too long there. Light and shade, light and shade. That's it. <laughs> Yasmin, I remember reading a quote from an old drilling supervisor of yours who spoke to Good Weekend in 2017, and she said at the time, Yasmin's still young, but she's destined for something big. She breaks down barriers and lifts our awareness as a society. She's pushing the buttons of an establishment and letting the rest of us be the judge of their responses. How do you feel about that description of yourself? I totally didn't remember that quote from the piece. I mean, I read it a long time ago. Also, I should say, Ash, who is the drilling supervisor, is actually a dude, but I love that you assume that it was a, a woman. Oh. It's so great. I was like, I, I yeah, was we should always cool. assume. Yeah, I was like, this is this is so good. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good assumption. <laughs> so great. I'm all about it because usually it's the other way around, you know, so I'm all here for it. I think it's an incredibly astute observation. And at this point in my life, so I'm turning 30 in a month. I'm turning 30 in a month today. And it's really interesting for me to think about what the next decade looks like, what I'm going to choose to be my vehicle of change. Because I think the thing about being young is that everyone talks about your potential. (laughs) Then you've got to realize it. Then you've got to somehow realize that potential. And I don't know what it looks like for me to realize the potential that people saw when I was young. And I also, I guess, think that it's not my job necessarily, or I don't think the right approach is to go around thinking, "Mm, how do I realize my potential? Like, that's just not going to be the one. It's also really fascinating to think about how others see you. And that's something that quote makes me kind of reflect on. Like, I didn't ever really think about 
how the guys on the rigs saw me, for example, beyond like being a woman engineer, that was kind of like, or like being a Muslim, that was kind of the extent of it. I don't often spend a lot of time thinking about what people see in me or what people think is possible, partly because I'm not sure how helpful it is. I also don't want to like spend a lot of time feeling like I have failed the expectations of people. And that's part of also why I think I like being in London, because I can kind of work away at what I want to work on without feeling like every single step is being looked at and being watched and being judged. Because that's never, that's never going to produce the best work. You need time away from the spotlight, for me anyway. I think that it's a real honour and it's really humbling that Ash said that and that people saw that in me. Part of me hopes that I can live up to that and part of me also knows that it's okay for me just to do whatever it is that feels right. Absolutely. Our final question for you, it is the same question for every In Conversation guest, and that is what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life? Great question. My definition of success has changed a lot over the years, I think. For me, I think like in broad terms, it would be living a life that's in alignment with my values. And, you know, my values come from the fact that I'm a Muslim woman, that I'm somebody that cares about justice, that I'm somebody that believes that it is my responsibility to use all that I have been blessed with in this world, to leave it in whatever way possible, to leave the world a better place than when I arrived in it. And I want to be judged by that. You know, I want to be judged by the values that I purport to hold. And, you know, other people can be the judge of that. And I believe that God will one day be the judge of that. But that's enough for me. Yasmin, thank you so much. Mish and I are so grateful that you spent this time with us. We are huge fans of you and your work and just couldn't be more stoked that we got to chat to you for the last hour. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, folks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Shameless with the ever-impressive Yasmin Abdelmajid. If you want more from Yasmin, you can find her on Instagram at yasmin underscore a, or you can buy her new book, Listen Layla. It's the perfect novel for any young adult in your life. We'll pop the link to buy that one in our show notes. As for us, we are over on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. If you enjoyed this chat, we have so many interviews in our back catalogue now. Another one we think you'll enjoy is with the inimitable Jamila Rizvi. She's an incredible writer with an incredible story to tell. So we'll pop the link to that in our show notes as well. Also head over to our website, shamelessthepodcast.com. You can search our complete back catalogue. You will see so many incredible faces there. And you can listen to all of those stories too. As always, do not forget to subscribe on Apple. Click follow on Spotify. Leave us a review if you're feeling particularly generous. That is all from us, guys. Have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday with the Shameless Pop Culture Wrap. Bye, guys. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish 
stylish if you want to say it quickly, style-ish if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.